0: Well, good evening. Welcome. Hopefully you can, you can kind of take a sigh of relief. Uh, end of your Wednesday, middle of the week for a lot of you guys. And, and this is hopefully just a good time to kind of breathe and sit down. I'm sure you guys saw on the back, we've, we've got coffee and cookies and snacks and stuff. Feel free during this time to get up, make your way back there, get a refill or whatever. This is just kind of a, a laid back time of teaching here. Here. Um, how many of you guys took the challenge last week and said I'm going to start reading the proverb of the day? Anyone anyone do that? You don't have to be cons- like every single day, but maybe start it. Okay. If if you have it, I would really invite you to to do this. We're we're as a community saying we're going to read the proverb of the day. 31 proverbs in the book, 31 days in the month usually. And and so whatever, you know, you can start tomorrow, Proverbs uh, chapter 18 or you could start today and read read Proverbs 17, but this is just kind of a way to for us to live in this stuff a little bit kind of you know try to get this inside our hearts and our minds of what it means to to be wise and so this is week three week one we talked about this idea of uh, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God and 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 try to kind of unpack that and say man what does that mean to to actually fear God and how how can that be a healthy thing and then last week we looked at kind of just a a general paradigm for thinking about making wise decisions as it relates to things like, well, what's God's will for a relationship I'm in, or God's will for a job I take, or God's will for a move, or going to school, or all the different uh, multitude of decisions that we make. And then the rest of this series, we're just going to be looking at different kind of slices of Like, what does a wise life look like? How how does wisdom inform finances? How does wisdom inform relationships? How does wisdom inform whatever it might be? Let me ask you a question. Let me start with this. Um, Imagine in your mind the wisest person you know. Okay? Think of that. Do you have them in there? Now, I don't mean like the wisest person you know like uh, you know, Dr. Oz or someone like that. I'm saying the wisest person that you know and knows you. Okay, the wisest person that if you had to make a big decision, you would get on the phone tonight and you would call them. Okay, someone that you know, someone who knows you. Did you have them in your mind? Wisest person that you know in your life. Okay, let me have you do this, if you would. If, If the wisest person you know is also the most educated person you know, like you know, PhD, you know, they're a neuroscience or they're a rocket scientist or astrophysics. I mean, the the most educated person if they're also the most educated person you know, would you stand up? This is sad. Okay, okay. Okay, one maybe? I see one person standing. Okay, so so you you can be educated and be wise, but it doesn't necessitate it, right? Okay. Think of the person in your mind again. How how many of you would say the wisest person I know is 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 um is the most affluent person. The 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 wealthiest person I know also. Uh and I don't mean wealth and like wisdom or anything. I mean the truly like hard cash. Okay? Wealthiest person I know, stand up. Cuz I also need your name, okay? <laughs> okay. So you can be wealthy and be wise, but it doesn't necessitate it, right? Okay, look, let me ask you one more. If you would say the wisest person you know has, has, has a unique ability to, to create and foster relationships. I mean, they're sort of like a relational savant. Like if you had a relationship problem, you would call them and say, man, how, how should I navigate this? If, if the wisest person you know is also the most relationally gifted person you know, stand up. Okay, okay, wow. Look around. Okay, sit down, sit down. Thank you. So, what this tells us is wisdom. At least in our own experience so far, you can be rich and be wise, but you don't have to be. You can be uh, very well educated and be wise, but you don't. You don't have to be. There are very wisely educated people. There, there, there are wise or uh, educated theologians, and yet who live lives of fools, but there there seems to be some sort of a connection between wisdom and, like, relationships, building relationships in our lives. So tonight what I want to do is I want to look at a, that, because that seems to be pretty foundational, and I want to look at this idea of of friendship. Scripture actually has an enormous amount to say about friendship in our life. I, it's Dick Foth, which... By the way, next week, Dick Foth is going to be here uh, teaching with us. He's going he's to be speaking on the idea of words and language that we use as it relates to the wise life. Dick Foth, I've heard him say many times, there are two things that you're going to have to deal with your whole life, money and relationships, and one of them will make you wealthy. So wisdom for life... In friendship, what, what exactly does that mean? Well, th- think about this first. Even just like, okay, how does, like, how does the Bible approach friendship? Like, how big of a deal is it? How, how central is it? When you first track the Bible open, the book of Genesis, our, our, our origin story, the book of beginnings, it starts out with this elaborate, artistic, artisan view of creation and what's done. And then these, these momentary pauses in which God intersects, and he gives this evaluative statement where he says, oh, that's good. Oh, that's, that's whole. That's, that's the idea of goodness. It's whole. Even he says, that's, that's very good. And he does this repeatedly. And the author of the book is saying, we, I want you to have an understanding about the goodness of creation, what it's all about. We can embrace it. We can live it. And it's not, it's not evil. It's not wrong. But there's one moment, and I think it stands out in contrast to these others, where God says, that's not good. You know what it is? It's the one time when he creates this being who he says is a reflection of me. And he says this being, he looked to see if there's, is there anything that could kind of like be suitable? You know, there's animals and there's plants and there's this creation. It's awesome. He says, but, but nothing is this sort of like soul connection there. And he goes, that's not good. What he was saying is isolation, even though he, I mean, he's got God. But isolation is, is the only thing in all of the creation story that, that stands out as being incomplete, not whole or good in that sense. The Bible is all about relationships. Listen to the words of uh, George MacDonald. I'm, I'm sorry, Gordon MacDonald. He He writes this. He says, A careful study of the Bible will lead one to realize something many of us were not adequately taught when we were young. And here it is that the Bible is about relationships. And then this is kind of an extreme statement, but maybe he's accurate. And no one is a complete human being apart from the context of those relationships. That's a huge statement. No one is a complete human being apart from the context of the relationships we were made for. And you think about it, the Bible is a book of relationships. It starts with a relationship with God, a relationship with others, a relationship with the world. Now, all of those get broken, but the whole story is a story of relationships, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but it's all about relationships. And see, we, here's the point, I think, in Genesis. This comes before sin. It said It's not good. This comes before the fall. It comes before rebellion. It comes before any of that. Right away, it's told. We're not made to be independent, so we are dependent creatures. We, we need the assurance that somebody loves us. We need the assurance that somebody is for us. We need to know that someone is paying attention to us, that, that someone watches out for us. This is, this is a key component for relational health in life or even to have just a, a, a stable life. Our well-being depends upon the fact that, that I know that. And yet, you guys, we, we are like as isolated maybe as any culture has been. Um, Robert Putnam about a decade ago wrote a book that it's, it's sort of the classic definitive study of community in, in Western society. It's got a great title. It's called Bowling Alone. It's not a great title. Bowling Alone. And Robert Putnam, he cites some research that, that, um, mo- that the most isolated people in our culture, in Western culture, listen to this, the most isolated people are three times more likely to die... Than relationally connected people. In fact, Putnam said that if you do nothing else in this book, he said, if right now you're not part of a small group, but if you even just join a small group of some sort, he says, it cuts the odds of your dying in the next year and a half. You believe it? See, that's I've been trying to get Pastor Christie to change her model for small groups of join a group or die. And she won't, she's such a stick in the mud, she won't, she won't do it. There was another study that came out that identified... Th- th- this is kind of crazy. It, it looked at 100 people who volunteered to be infected by, by the virus that just causes the common cold. And oddly enough, people actually signed up for this study. Well, it turns out that people who, who, who uh, volunteered to be infected by the common cold virus... It turns out that, that relationally isolated people among that group are four times more likely to get sick than people in community. This is, this is true. And um, they're more susceptible is, is basically the idea. They have higher levels of the virus, and they produce significantly more mucus than connected people. I'm, I'm not making this up. This is true. So unfriendly people are snottier than friendly people, I think is the point. Well, see, the relevance for this, this is what I want us to see. The relevance for this, it's not just like, oh, this relates to people who live alone. Oh, this relates to single people as opposed to married people. No, no, no. This is what Putnam was pointing out, that we live in a culture that some of the most isolated people are surrounded by the most relationships. Even, it's just that they're not a certain kind of relationship. It's sometimes the, it's, it's the married people sometimes who are the most isolated and they, they live in a large community, but they've, they've kind of stepped back from a relationship. Oftentimes because of a hurt, because, because they've, been, they've been offended in some way, someone has exploited them. And so sort of as a, maybe just a little safeguarding, there's just a one incremental tiny little step back and another tiny little step back. And it's these incremental itty-bitty steps backwards into isolation, and see, I would say that even in our own cities, I think about Fort Collins and Loveland and, and, and just the surrounding communities, I think, I think we've kind of lost the art of friendship at the expense of something we call networking. Ever thought about that? Most of our careers, most of us, doesn't matter what, what, what career you're in, the majority of the jobs that are gotten, especially the highly desirable jobs, and most of us know this, are because of not what you know, but who you know. It's typically who you know that, that will secure you a particular job and a specific one that you're going for. The, the best jobs go before they're posted. We, all, you know, we hear this all the time. And so, and so in the West, especially here in our area, networking ha- has become a huge component to the fabric of relationships. And see, friendship, you know what we call friendship... I think, can easily become something or somebody that we need or that we will need. And as soon as, as soon as I don't need them anymore, as soon as they don't need me anymore, we just sort of drift apart. We just sort of move, move away. And probably all of us can think of relationships like that. Oh, it was my golfing buddy, but again, I don't necessarily need them anymore, and it's just slowly drifted apart. And a friend can be something that we, we just sort of even the word throw around. I mean, I, I do this. I bump into someone at the store and I start talking to them in line and I find out a little bit about where they're from. And I might say, oh, this is, this is a friend of mine. But see, when the proverbs, the book of Proverbs uses the word friend, it means something really, really different. It's talking about someone who is, who is a pillar in your life. It's talking about someone who walks through life with you. And I have a sense that much of what we, I, you, have experienced as as friendship in our life has kind of withered it's kind of been lost a little bit and i want us to look at at the book of proverbs to see are there any bits here are there any like nuggets are there any kind of recalibrating moments that could kind of get us back as a co- as this community first of all on what is like what is friendship what does that mean what does that look like? And so I want to look at what are, what are some characteristics, and this is not an exhaustive list. I could come up with 50. You could come up with 100 exhaust, you know, characteristics of what, what friendship has, but I want to look at three key ones that I think we can you know, have a handle and something to walk away with. So characteristics of what I'm going to call a happy few. I'll explain that in a second here. Look at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24 with me. Proverbs 18.24 from the New American Standard Bible. We read, A man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Uh, Gordon MacDonald, who, who I mentioned earlier, uses this phrase in a lot of his books, a happy few. And what he's, what he's doing is he's using this phrase to speak of those sort of like soul, just few, soul friendships the phrase, happy few, is actually picked up or lifted from Shakespeare's play, The Life of King Henry V. And in the play, Shakespeare has King Henry, he's going to do a major battle, he's getting his guys, his guys who are going to march into battle with him, and he has this line, and there's another phrase that you will recognize from it, where he says, um, he spoke to them as a band of brothers, we few, we happy few. The happy few is that that small group that is going in the same direction as you, that is giving you support, that's watching your right side, watching your left side, keeping eye on your life. Because see, I think we're all at risk. I'm at risk anyway. For developing patterns, uh, habits, uh, choices, which kind of move me. Remember that slow incremental, step by step into a place of isolation behind facades. Uh, safe places you know where i don 't have to always be transparent and vulnerable, and so sometimes we we, we feel relationally connected because we hit you know i 've got five hundred Facebook friends or i 've got a thousand Facebook friends or oh man, I did hit fifteen hundred facebook friends and and we sort of think maybe because i 've got this like cyber relationship, maybe that that 's close enough to a soul relationship in in some way. It's interesting, scholars suggest that most of us are capable of knowing about 150 people. Um, Malcolm Gladwell uh, wrote a book called The Tipping Point. And in The Tipping Point, he, he writes this, The figure of 150 seems to represent the maximum number of individuals with whom we can have a genuinely social relationship. The kind of relationship that goes with knowing who they are and how they relate to us. So I'll put it this way. Think about this number, 150. It's the number of people that if you walked into Starbucks and you saw them sitting at a table, it wouldn't be too awkward if you uninvitedly sat down at their table and started talking to them. Okay? Now some of you have no boundaries and you will sit down with anyone and do that. Okay? I'm not talking about you. But if you have boundaries, I'm talking about the kinds of people that you would say, oh, yeah, I know their name. You know, John, maybe in the last bit, but I know something about them. I know where they work. You know, I kind of have an idea as to who they are, and I know how they relate to me. Oh, yeah, we, you know, we used to be on this team together. Oh, yeah, they're in this club that I'm a part of, or they live in my neighborhood in some way. But now Malcolm Gladwell also identifies another group within the 150, and he says this, the This group within it is what he calls a sympathy group. Okay, this is is McDonald's concept of the happy few, or at least close to that. He suggests that this group will number between about 10 to 15 in your life. And Gladwell writes this. He says, make a list of all the people you know whose death would leave you truly devastated. That's the sympathy group. That's the happy few, or maybe the happy few is even less than that. The people that you would show up at their funeral not as a spectator, but as an authentic mourner. That's going to get you closer to that group. Now, some of you might be thinking, Crap, I have no happy few.
1: I'm, you know, oh, what am I going to do?
0: Don't, do not fear. Do not lose heart. Um, there, there's, there's still hope. Okay, Isolation is not the end. Let me have you do this, though. I want you to take three minutes. Uh, We do this every week. Turn to your tables. And for three minutes, if there's six people at your table, it's 30 seconds a person. So just take 30 seconds. And I want you to answer this question. Okay? Thinking about isolation. How many days could you last in solitary confinement? Okay, prison we're talking here. Okay? How many days would you last in solitary confinement? And how, how would you do it? Like, what would you do? How would you last? that long. Okay? Three minutes and then we'll come back together. Okay, who had the most, any, anyone make it over 100 days, you think? Make, I, I say it like you've done it. Anyone think you can make it over 100 days? Okay, couple, okay, there's, there's one extreme introvert in the back who thinks they can make 100 days. Any, any unique ideas of how you would make it? Like, did anyone say anything creative, like, oh, that's a good idea, I'll have to write that down for next time in, I'm in solitary confinement. What's the idea? Yell it out. I don't know if you guys heard that this person was an actual POW in a camp and would play a round of golf every day in his mind about like how he would swing, paying, every every last aspect of it. And apparently he got better. Apparently I need to be in solitary confinement because my golf game is horrible, horrible. Okay, good. Well, here's the idea. Isolation is detrimental. And we all know that the thought of like being in solitary confinement, no human contact, just... Even putting ourselves or projecting ourselves there a little bit makes us feel like, man, I would start to break, I would start to disintegrate. So what that tells me is then part of being integrated means this whole relational connection in our lives. So <clears throat> here's what we want to do. We want to look at, okay, what isolation's bad? But the reality is the data tells us we are, and we don't even know it, it's like fish swimming in water, maybe more isolated than any other time period in recorded history anyway. So what do we do? The prophet Jeremiah (coughs) records in chapter 16, verse 16, this statement made by God, and it's so cool. Israel is on the cusp of being taken into uh, another country. They're going to be taken over by the Assyrians. And, and God, through the prophet Jeremiah, gives him, in, in language, sort of like a final warning, like, stop stop your foolishness and make, a, make, make wise decisions. And this is what he says to him in uh, Jeremiah sixteen sixteen. This is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find, I love this phrase, rest for your souls. You'll find integration. You'll find wholeness. Well, that's what relationships do. So let's stand at the crossroads. Let's, let's ask about the ancient paths. And that's why we go to the book of Proverbs. So take a look with me, if you would. The, these are these, these characteristics of what a happy few looks like in your life. Number one, if you have an outline, you can fill in a couple blanks here. The first blank is, it's a question to you, are you, are you loyal at all times? proverbs 17 17 we read this a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity now let me say this before we go on because i want to say one thing real quickly because i i know we can we can go in a, a direction that's not helpful as we study this the first thing is this is not so much for you to evaluate your friends Okay, it's like I don't want you calling people this week and be like, I want to let you know you're a a rotten friend, man, because you're not that loyal. I just learned this at church this week. No, no, this is for you to evaluate, are you a good friend? Are you being a good friend in your own life? Um, You can know if you're a good friend by the amount of crisis you're willing to tolerate in someone's life. That's how you can know if you're a good friend, by the amount of crisis you're willing to talk. You ever have a friend who, like, breaks up with, like, the love of their life? I mean, you're in for, like, a crazy ride, right? It's just, they're going to go nuts. They're going to, but how much crisis are you willing to put up with in that person's life? Have you ever noticed that some people are, like, in this language of Proverbs, like, born for adversity, it's like they might be kind of annoying normally in life, but when your life just goes to pot, they show up and they're there. It's like, it's like they were born for the apocalypse. You know what I'm saying? Like they, 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 their, their loyalty shines as soon as just junk hits, as soon as your life falls apart. They're absolutely born for that. They have loyalty. It was two years ago in the news that... Um, the, there was all this controversy. Eduardo, one of the co-founders of Facebook, do you remember this? He was, uh, just before Facebook was was going to go public and, uh, you know, the IPO, um, Eduardo, one of the co-founders, this is a multi-billionaire, um, renounces his American citizenship to avoid taxes and says, uh, yeah, I'm going to go to another country and, you know, become a citizen there. And the Washington Post reported that... Uh, that he stood to be hit with about $600 million in capital gains taxes anytime, as soon as he sold his 4% of the profit. And there were these senators who were like mad. In fact, there were two Democratic senators, one from New York and one from Pennsylvania, who actually in response to this said, well, they created an act and they called it the Expatriate Act. And basically what it was going to do is not allow him to get away scot-free. They thought th- this, is, this is the ultimate picture, these senators thought, of disloyalty to, to our country. And so their response was to come up with this because they saw Eduardo as someone who was disloyal. You ever had a time where, where, where you're sick? Like, have you ever just been sick as a dog and and? Sometimes, like, you've got no one. No one takes care of you. And then other times, like, someone is there. Like, super, super loyal. I remember when I was a freshman in college, I went down to school in Arizona. I was at Grand Canyon University. And uh, freshman year, living in the dorms, and I had an intro to psychology class. It was, like, all the way across campus. It's a small campus, but still, it was all the way across. So. I remember being like, kind of like not, too, not not feeling well. I had been sick, and I just, I hadn't eaten for like a day. It was some, something like the flu, and I thought, well, I need. My stomach was just like horrible. I felt like I was going to, you know, throw up, and so I thought, well, I need something to eat. So I should have like fruit. So I'll eat, eat like some oranges, and well, it's like acidic. I found out later, it's a bad idea. So I'm I'd like eat a couple oranges, and so I remember going to class and sitting in Dr. Donahue's intro to psychology class, and I'm just sweating. I'm just like miserable. And and so I make it through. The, I think I get out five minutes early, and then and, and I'm walking back across campus. And here come all my buddies. These are the guys who live, like, like one's my roommate, one's across the hall, one's down the hall. And they come up, like, man, you look horrible. And I was like, I don't think I can make it. You know, and I'm just, I mean, I just thought they'd just bury me right there. I was just, it felt so awful. Well, all my friends were just like, dude, I don't want to get what you've got. And, you know, they're just kind of like, good luck getting back. We'll see you back there. And then this one guy, Jason Howard, who wasn't even that close of a buddy? He's kind of one of those guys where it's like he's okay. He doesn't shower enough, and you know he doesn't wash his clothes. He lets it just hang out outside and thinks that that cleans it. And, but he, I'm serious. And so, well, Howard, Howard's like, man, he grabs my arm and puts it in. Howard's like a six foot four guy. Puts my arm over his shoulder and he like drags me back to my to my dorm room. And he was like, at that moment, I remember thinking like, aren't you worried about what I've got, you know? And he's just like, come on, man, we're gonna get you back. This was like the guy born for the apocalypse sort of thing. He drags me back there, you know, puts me in my room, and over like the next two days as I'm slowly getting better, he's like going down to the cafeteria and, you know, bringing me like a bowl of soup. And, you know, he's, he's bringing all this stuff. And, and Jason Howard was taking care of me. Stinky Jason Howard was taking care of me. Because he at that moment, he was fiercely loyal in the midst of me being just sick. My favorite author of all time, C.S. Lewis. I think that's why he, he penned these words. Now, this is, now think about this. Lewis, Lewis, in my mind, is one of the wisest guys who has ever lived. Okay? In, in a letter that he wrote to a friend, they were talking about friendship and accountability and buddies and all this stuff. And he makes this like side comment. I, I thought this is so interesting. He says, Friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly to me, it is the chief happiness of life. And then listen to this. If you're, if you're, it doesn't matter if you're a young person or not, but if you are especially, listen to these words. This is one of the sages of this last century. He said, if I had to give a piece of advice to a young man about a place to live, I think I would say, sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near friends. <laughs> I know I am very fortunate in this respect. I mean, think about that. Sacrifice almost anything. To live near friends, why? Because he said, like Foth said, it will enrich you like nothing else in your life. Good relationships. So the first characteristic of this this, this fierce loyal are, are you a fiercely loyal person? And you can determine that by how much how much chaos are you willing to put up with in the person's life? But the second question to determine your friendship is: Are you positive behind their backs? Proverbs chapter twenty. Verse 19 and then 1628 reads this A gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid anyone who talks too much. A perverse man stirs up conflict, and a gossip separates close friends. You know you're a good friend to someone by how you speak about them when they're not around. But do you ever think, like, doesn't it sometimes just kind of feel good to, like, dish out on someone or like just to share like a piece of dirt about something i know some of you it does it does all of us there's there's that element of sharing information gossiping and i think there's a lot of different reasons i mean if nothing else sometimes breaking the news story is like huge why because all of a sudden everyone is listening to you you're important in that moment If you have a piece of information, even if it's bad, even if it's dirt, everyone stops and they turn your way, and we have what we want. We have attention. We have significance for that moment. Sometimes we do it for that reason. But but oftentimes it it feels good to just gossip even for that that one moment. It's really interesting. Secular sociologists, many of them say that actually gossip plays a good and important role In our human society, even so much that the human society couldn't develop, we couldn't evolve, we couldn't go on as a society without gossip. And this is why they say, they say, because gossip teaches us, teaches you how to behave. Here's how it works. If, if I come to you and I say, uh, I say that my friend Mark did something and what an idiot he was, um, I bet you won't do that to me, right? Um, if, if I go to you and I tell you what so-and-so said about someone else, you're going to be informed, oh, I shouldn't say that to them. So they would say gossip plays this, the, the, this healthy role. Actually, it becomes the way in which we, we process information. It becomes the way in which we understand behavior. It's actually necessary, they would say, for our development, for our, our preservation of a healthy culture. But see, because we live in a broken world, in a sinful world, we rarely bring any of that truth to the person themselves, and we only say it behind their back. So if gossip plays an important role, it's only because we haven't engaged with the Scriptures. Because, you see, what what if as a community, just think of us right here in this room, what if as a community we chose to swallow that dirt that, that we know about that person and that person that, that we know in common, we only say something positive, something awesome about their life. What if, what if for a week, just a week, we as a community, we decided that none of us are going to have to brag about anything because someone else is going to do it for us. Because we're going to be talking about something amazing, something life-giving going on in that person's life. What if, what if we taught people how to behave not by sharing negative things, what, what if we taught people how to behave by by sharing the wins the positive things in people's life what if we went against our cultural values can you imagine if we went against this cultural value of saying yeah gossip actually plays an important role and we said we're going to speak well about people and that's how we're going to actually inform behavior so we have to we have to be positive in front of their faces but but I'm sorry, behind their backs. But this third one, I think, is maybe the most difficult. And let me, let me read the, the proverb first. Proverbs 27, 5, and 6 says, Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. And then the statement here, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. You can know if you're a good friend by, Are you truthful to their faces? We have to be positive to, you know, behind their backs to people we know. But, but this, this is the toughest one. This is the one that makes relationship awkward. This is the one that makes relationships weird. It actually requires more of you as a friend to do this piece. I've, I've had people come to me and say, Hey Brent, the, w- the way that you treated that person was completely rude and inappropriate. Like totally unacceptable you've got to go to them and apologize and make i don 't know what's going on you 've got to go repair whatever whatever's going on because you're not talking it out so you're acting it out and it's it's really really detrimental. I had a buddy back in college, his name was Jason Kaiser, and I lived with him for a semester in an apartment and I remember one time him him come and we were we were pretty good friends and I remember him coming to me one time and i'm sitting in my family room with my feet up on the on the coffee table, and he just walked in and he goes dude, what's going on with you? And I was like, just watching a little TV. What's going on with you? And he's like, no, 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 man. I'm talking about your life. Like, what's going on with it? I was like, I'm living it, dude. I, what, what are you talking about? And he said, things are not right. You're not. And, I, and so finally, I, I, I just said like, what, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And he said, you're leaving dishes in the kitchen, your rooms, you know, your bed's not made. And I'm like, My bed's not... What what in the world are you talking about? My bed. And I start kind of, you know, arguing with him, well, your bed's not always made. And he goes, no, 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 this is what I'm saying, Brent. You're normally pretty organized and you're pretty neat. And you cannot compartmentalize your life. No one can. So what it tells me is if you're not making your bed, if you're not cleaning your dishes, it means other areas of your life that are deeper are a mess. And it, like, cut me to the heart because there was some stuff in my life that was a mess. Now, my immediate response was not the wise response, it was more the fool. And I said, ah, everything's fine, dude, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, you know, who do you think you are, kind of thing. No, he was a close friend. But I look back at that moment, and some changes happened because of that, but I look back and I go, this was a guy who was willing to confront me in relationship, and come to me and say, this is not right, man, this, something is going on with your life. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-three says, whoever rebukes a person will in the end gain favor rather than the one who has a flattering tongue. Now, again, this doesn't mean you just walk around saying, hey, man, you're a real jerk. Everyone thinks you're judgmental and no one likes you. No, no, no. All of this comes, remember, in the context of healthy relationship. These are, these are the, the happy few, okay? These, these are the sympathy group. This is, this is the small community around you, the ones that you call friend. You know who your friends are, by who you are fiercely loyal to. You know who your friends are by who you are positive about behind their backs and then who you speak truth to. See, the, these principles that we see in the book of Proverbs, if if we absorb them, if we actually absorb them in our lives, Jesus talked about not just hearing what I say, but doing it. If we actually did this stuff, it, it would revolutionize our relational health and the relationships around us. But, But here's the best part. These are the kinds of relationships that God is holding up in Scripture to us. Yeah, absolutely. But better than that. There's something way better than that. This is the kind of life that God is offering us because this is how God has chosen to behave toward you and toward us. Everything we've talked about tonight is is simply the message of Jesus. Let me ask a couple questions. Think about these. How loyal is God to you? How loyal is God? I would say fiercely. You know what the biggest criticisms that Jesus got oftentimes were, man, you're a friend to that guy, a friend to sinners, a friend to tax collectors, a friend to people. He was fiercely loyal to people who others thought, man, what are you doing with them? Fiercely loyal to them. Hebrews 13, 5, we're told, that God says to us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. John 15, 3, the verse that we read in our responsive reading tonight earlier, A greater love has no one than this, that they're willing to lay down their lives. See, you don't ever, ever have to worry about saying, man, I'm so broken, I'm so guilty, I'm so messed up. You're, you never have to worry that God's going to just throw up his hands and give up on you. It doesn't matter how messed up, how broken, how rebellious, how anything you are. God will never, ever, ever, ever give up on you. Ever. Second question, how positive does God speak about you when you're not around, if that's possible? <laughs> well, Jesus takes all of our sin, all of our brokenness, and because of that, he sees you as whole. He sees you as complete It's not, it doesn't really matter how bruised and how guilty you are. He calls you in Scripture the apple of his eye. He calls you the crown of his creation. He sees you as completely righteous through Jesus. Maybe best of all, in and, and one of the high points, he says, you're the bride. Jesus says, you're my bride. I mean, how much better could he speak about you? And because He's he's come and He's taken all of the brokenness, all of the sin, all of the insecurity, all of the doubt, all of the fear, all of the hurt, He can look at us, He can look at you as completely whole. How willing is God to speak the truth to you? Well, I would suggest that it is His truthfulness to us that allows us to live lives that we are proud of. Let Let me try to pull together and maybe what is the most famous verse that probably all of us know but let's read all of it John 3:16 through 20 answers these three questions for us listen to this how loyal first question how loyal is God John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life how positive how positive is God about you when you're not around For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. How willing is God to speak the truth to you? Verse 19, this is the verdict. That's a truth statement. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light. Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. See, Jesus says the truth about you is that you are riddled with fear. You are riddled with insecurity. You are shot through with brokenness. You are far worse than you ever feared. And yet, in Christ... You are more loved than you ever dared imagine. That's the message of the gospel. And that is a friend. No, that is the friend. Come to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us. Would you pray? Father, as we just for a few moments this evening have opened up our mind have have attempted to refocus on what the ancient paths tell us about something that is not tangential to our lives it is the core we serve a God who is triune one God revealed in three persons who eternally have related self-giving love to one another a relational God You didn't become relational upon creation. You have forever been the relational God. You've made us in your image. You've made us hardwired for relationship, for friendship. God, help us not to, to downplay the importance of this, regardless of our personality types, regardless of our background, regardless of our hurts, our scars. Would you help us to see anew the biblical necessity of friendship? it's important for us now no it's essential for us now and it is essential for us in time to come it's how you've made us god for those who were in this room who who maybe have some broken relationships have some hurts would you put a braveness in us like we were singing earlier to actually step into those relationships to confess to mend to offer forgiveness whatever is necessary because that is how you would have us behave, because that is how we have integrity, how we integrate. And God, would you, would you protect anyone in this room who maybe, maybe your spirit is kind of intersecting with right now and just saying, hey, you've taken some steps backward toward isolation and it's not healthy. That's when you're susceptible to spiritual attack. That's when you're susceptible to relational breakdown. That's how you're susceptible to temptation. How you're susceptible to so many different kinds of abuse. Do not go there. God, would they respond by the power of your spirit to take a step forward into the light? God, may we be, finally, may we be a community, those, us sitting at tables, who would be available, be friends, be willing to be friends to the people across the table. Maybe someone that we only know a name, we know very little about. But would you make us, give us new eyes to see? We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, next couple minutes, I'm going to ask you to stand before we're dismissed. Would you kind of as an anthem, these words in this song speak of fierce loyalty to you from your God. Would you let these kind of like flood your mind, flood your heart before we walk out?